when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil I. Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking to Lauren Grush, who longtime Verge fans will remember well. She was our space reporter here for years before she moved over to Bloomberg. It's always fun to talk about space with Lauren, but this conversation is particularly exciting since Lauren's new book, The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts, is out today. It's been 40 years since Sally Ride became the first American woman in space, but she was far from the last. She was one of the first six women astronauts NASA brought into the astronaut class of 1978. Throughout the early 1980s, each of the six women, Sally Ride, Judy Resnick, Kathy Sullivan, Anna Fisher, Ray Seddon, and Shannon Lucid, would get a chance to fly a mission on one of the space shuttles, including, unfortunately, the ill-fated 1986 Challenger mission. The story of the six may be history, but it's far from ancient, and there's a lot going on in it that ties directly to today. For example, you'll hear us talking about NASA's Artemis program and how it has the explicit goal of putting an American woman and person of color on the moon. We'll also talk about a frankly amazing recruiting video that Star Trek star Nichelle Nichols made in the late 1970s to recruit more women and people of color to become astronaut candidates. There's a link to the video in the show notes. You should really go watch this video. Nichelle wasn't just recruiting explorers. She was selling the idea of space as the future of business. That's a diversity push and the commercialization of space, all packed into a single 1970s ad starring a celebrity. Some things just aren't as new as they seem. And the commercialization of space is a big deal here in 2023. The space shuttle program, which you'll hear us call a space truck, never became a big business the way that NASA always wanted it to. But space did become a big business. You can't talk about space right now without talking about private spaceflight including SpaceX and Elon Musk. And you'll hear Lauren and I talk about the benefits and the dangers of leaving U.S. space exploration in the hands of private companies. And, of course, every great astronaut story has some hijinks in it. Listen to the end of the show for Lauren's favorite story from her book about how three of the six made a Boeing 747 flight instructor regret most of his choices in midair. Okay, 
Here's Lauren Grush, author of The Six. Here we go. Lauren Grush, you are the author of The Six, the untold story of America's first women astronauts. You're also a space reporter at Bloomberg. And most importantly, you are a former Verge reporter. Welcome to Decoder. A Verge graduate, if you will, as uh, you like to say. You don't leave. You can check out. You don't leave. The expats are expats <laughs> Hotel for California. Life. Yeah, exactly. It's the unofficial theme song of Verge. Uh, let's talk about the book. Very exciting. Your first book, I would say, having known you and worked with you for a long time, the themes of this book are things that you have been thinking about for a very long time. So just start at the start. Tell us about the book. It's called The Six. It's about the first six women astronauts that NASA sent into space, and it chronicles their lives, how they came to the space program, and their inaugural flights with NASA. And it basically is set between the mid-70s and mid-80s when they came into the program, and it's capped off by the Challenger accident, as one of the six was unfortunately on board for that, uh, that accident. Tell me about the six. Who were they? Where did they come from? It struck me that there's a lot of books about sort of the first astronauts, first male astronauts. There's not a lot of coverage of these six women and why there were six women at once at the same time. How did that come to be? Who are these folks? Sure. And that's ultimately why I wanted to write the book. I really, for most of my life, only knew about Sally Ride. I feel like most people know that name. But if I asked who the second American woman in space was, I don't think a lot of people would know. I certainly didn't know until I started looking into this. And so, yeah, just to read off their kind of very brief bios, we have Sally Ride, who was the first American woman in space. She was an astrophysicist and former tennis player, followed by Judy Resnick, who was the second woman in space, also the first Jewish American to go into space, followed by Kathy Sullivan, first American woman to do a spacewalk, then Anna Fisher, the first mother to go into space, followed by Ray Seddon, and then Shannon Lucid. And Shannon Lucid was the sixth, but she also went on to fly longer in space than all of them. So she had a pretty storied career herself. There's been sort of a few of these books, movies that re-examine this pivotal moment in American history, which is told mostly through the lens of swaggering bravado, beating the Soviets, that whole thing. And then it turns out there's an array of folks who no one really talked about until recently that actually built the foundations of this program. Is that theme present in your book too? Flipping through it, it it's it's in there, but then there are astronauts and they are the <laughs> face of the thing. And so it, it, it just felt a little different. How did that play out as you were working on the book? Well, the bravado certainly didn't dissipate uh, when the women came on board. Uh, in fact, that was kind of an underlying theme of the entire time they were there is that they really were coming into this boys club culture back then they really did not want to make a big deal of the fact that they were the first women. They were all about being one of the guys. And I think that's just kind of indicative. They they didn't really have the luxury to highlight that they were different. It was all about fitting in as much as possible. There's a great a uh, point in the book where Anna and Sally sneak away to a department store to go pick up khaki shorts and polo t-shirts so that they could fit in. Like that's the unofficial uniform of the engineers <laughs> at the time. You know, they wanted to be as seamless in the organization as possible. That really was the kind of atmosphere that they were coming into. And that 
that really dictated kind of how they reacted to things, you know, they were obviously dealing with a lot of sexist comments and uneducated folks when it came to how to deal with pregnancy, for instance. And they really had to kind of keep their cool during this whole time. You know, the first women who to do anything always have a bit of a microscope on them. And so lest they be seen as difficult, they wanted to, you know, play by the rules as much as possible and and not make a big fuss about various um, indiscretions. How did NASA pick these six women? Was there a process? At one point in the book, you mentioned like someone just had to choose. Like the administrator of NASA said, okay, you're it. How did that go? I was thinking that when it came to the astronaut selection process, it was like this rigorous, you know, very objective task. And maybe they even had like an algorithm that spat out, you know, everybody's attributes. And and while they did try to get as close as they could, they did have a bit of a point system. Yeah, it really did come down to uh, an interview. So for these specific astronauts, they were coming in at a time when NASA was somewhat relaxing their requirements to be an astronaut. They were also making a concerted effort to open up the program to a much wider array of individuals. So they were specifically targeting people of color and women because they had done so poorly at getting (laughs) those people into the program before. And they also created a new role called the mission specialist. And so prior to this, it really was they were looking for people primarily with jet piloting experience, which was impossible for women to achieve back when they were first looking for astronauts because they were banned from flying jets for the, the military. They created this mission specialist role that was really geared towards researchers, scientists, engineers, People with advanced degrees in STEM, they were working on various payloads that would be on board the shuttle, deploying satellites, things of that nature. That made it easier for people like the women to come on board because they had they met those requirements for the program. And so they found out that NASA was looking in the various ways that they found out. Each one has a unique story about that. And they sent in their application and they were invited to Houston for a week as part of the finalist group. And that's when they went through a, a, a wide array <laughs> of interesting tasks. You know, there was definitely a a slate of physical exams that just to make sure that they passed various physical requirements. They went underwent a psych exam from what was described as a good cop and a bad cop routine. So there was a good cop psych who would ask you how you felt about your mother and what animal you would be if you were born an animal (laughs) all over again. And then there was a bad cop uh, psychologist who would ask you to count back from 100 by 7. And then when you inevitably messed up, he'd tell you very loudly and get angry with you to see how you responded. They also had to enclose themselves in a personal rescue sphere. It was basically a little ball just to make sure that you didn't freak out when you were in enclosed space for hours at a time. Uh, but the real test was a uh, an interview, an hour and a half interview with the selection committee. And that was ultimately what decided your fate. As long as you passed all the other tests, you know, it was really there that the astronauts sold themselves. And it was also how the selection committee, you know, gauged whether or not they thought the person was right for the job. And if they wanted the job, that was kind of, that was a big part of it too. They didn't want to put all of this uh, investment into somebody and then have them quit or leave the program. We live in a very complicated time in terms of conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion. Obviously, when we work together, you wrote stories about big space companies with 
harassment problems. We'll, we'll come to that. It just strikes me that this is happening before any of that. There's no rigor around the value of diversity in an organization. There's no real understanding of it other than, boy, it's pretty weird there's no women in space ever, right? Like, that's more or less the motivation here. But inside of NASA, there's an organizational restructure that happens to enable more women to enter the field. How did that come about? I mean, that's kind of a key decoder question. You have to change NASA to create these opportunities. What was the driving force behind that? There was a lot of outside pressure, you know, in the time that the space race happened, this era of the space shuttle happened, a lot changed in our country. We had the civil rights movement and we also had the feminist movement and NASA really couldn't ignore criticism much longer from people wondering why do we only have white men in the, the space program? But to your point, you know, it didn't happen overnight. So while they did make this effort and this push to bring women and people of color into the program, you know, there was definitely some friction when it came to bringing them on board. For instance, you know, this was the first time for a lot of the astronauts and engineers working with women at a professional capacity at an equal capacity a few of them have admitted that at the beginning, they were pretty skeptical that the women could hack it, you know, and not just the women, but also the researchers, the, the, those mission specialist roles. A lot of the military folks were skeptical that, you know, the ash, the job of an astronaut could be done by someone who just had a postdoc, you know, so <laughs> just um, a postdoc. Yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, we know that it's 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 really available to most. But at the time, you know, it, it, it was not seen that way. There's various instances in the book that I highlight where, you know, that culture clash did indeed happen. You know, this was definitely a time where people got away with things they definitely would not be getting away with today. There's one astronaut admitted to me that, you know, he used to have a Playboy calendar up on the back of his door. And so when his door was open, you couldn't see it. But when it was closed, <laughs> you could definitely see it. And, you know, the women kind of just had to go along with it. For instance, Judy Resnick she had a bit of a reputation for, you know, being able to hang with the guys on on their terms. And so whenever she'd leave the office, she'd just pat the Playboy calendar on her way out. <laughs> Obviously, that's just not the kind of thing that, that would fly today. It was just things like that. And Obviously, some unenlightened attitudes, not just from the men, but from the women. There were a number of wives of the astronauts at the time who didn't want the women flying in the backseat of the T-38 jets with their husbands just because they felt like that was too close proximity and they didn't want them getting too close, you know. What are you going to do in a T-38? <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I was like, there's, I imagine there's very limited mobility in there. So I'm not sure there's much concern, but that was just the attitude at the time. Lots of, lots of hiccups where people were, were, were thinking, oh, how would this be seen if I was with you? You know, just various things that we just would not put up with today. But not only did they have to put up with it, but they had to put up with it in a, in a delicate way so that they didn't draw attention to it. Otherwise, that could potentially be used against them and, and against women being in the program. So you've got the six back then, right? They're slapping the Playboy calendar on the way out the door. You obviously are writing the book now. Everyone's got the benefit of hindsight. What are their attitudes now about making that change? Because this is a big, it's an organizational change. It's a cultural change. They had to be the face of it. There has been a long and winding conversation about that brand of feminism even uh, compared to today. What is the attitude of the six today 
towards the the things they had to do back then? Well, their attitude was mostly positive. I think they all felt that they were treated quite well. And I think that also might have to do with how they were treated before they came to NASA. You know, uh, Shannon Lusa is a great example of this. She was slightly older than the rest of the six when she was picked. And just by living in a slightly different era, she had so much difficulty when it came to getting just a job before she went to NASA. She wanted to be a chemist. She, you know, and she had a master's and then she got her PhD, but she had to fight endlessly for anyone to give her a job, not only a job, but just equal pay to her male colleagues. People would actively tell her, you know, nobody's going to hire you. You're a woman. And so I think they were all very pe- pleasantly surprised when they came into the space program because at the time they were actively wanting women to participate in the t- at that time. Now, I will say that I do think it's a bit different today. You know, as I mentioned earlier, that time period was all about fitting in and kind of blending into the background. Obviously, the press didn't let them do that because, you know, they were very much agog at the idea (laughs) of women flying into space. Some of the questions they were asked by the press were just completely terrible. But ultimately, the goal of the six was to just be one of the guys you know, keep your head down and work as much as possible and not draw too much attention to the fact that they are women. I think we've evolved a bit today where obviously we still want equality when it comes to everyone that we work with, but I do think that we have an easier time at celebrating the fact that we're women and the things that make us unique and different. And I think that ultimately they had to go through that in order for us to get to where we are, which is the burden that they had to bear. But I think we have gotten to a place where we can say, you know, I am different, but also that means I I should still be treated the same. Do they think of it as a burden? I guess that's the heart of my question. It seems like they are proud of being pioneers. They're proud of making the change. They have some funny stories to tell. But I didn't get from the book the the sense that there was a weight or a burden that they felt they had carried that other people owed them anything for, that they were just happy to have been astronauts. I think for the most part, yes. And I don't think they wanted to draw too much attention to it. I think a lot of the burden was on Sally's shoulders Mm -hmm. because she was the first one to fly, the first American woman to fly. And that came with an exponentially greater amount of pressure and asks of her than the other five had to go through. So for Sally, she was just inundated with media requests, lots of personal questions that she didn't want to answer. And then she was mostly shielded from it ahead of her flight. But then when she returned to Earth, it was definitely a coming back to Earth moment. That protection was gone and she was just inundated with requests. And it got to be so much that she actually sought out therapy at one point. It it really did take a bit of a toll. But ultimately, over time, she realized just how monumental her flight was. And it inspired her, you know, talking to young women to go on to create her nonprofit, which she dedicated most of her life to, which Sally Ride Science, which is geared towards inspiring young women to get into STEM fields. So yes, there definitely was a burden. I think for most of them, it doesn't feel too oppressive and they're proud of it. But there, there was a time where it was a particular struggle for some of them. I always think about the organization and what created the opportunities. It's Decoder, after all. There were earlier attempts to bring women into the program. They kind of failed, right? In the book, you mentioned Mercury 13. There are some others. Why did those fail? 
I wouldn't even say they were attempts to bring women to the program, <laughs> or at least NASA wasn't attempting to bring women to the program. The women were fighting to bring themselves into the program. So yes, they're kind of a famous group. They're kind of, they're referred to now as the Mercury 13, not the best title. It was, it was a name given to them by, I think a producer in the nineties or something like that, but <laughs> it does, it does refer to 13. They blew up an asteroid that was threatening the earth, I believe. <laughs> Oh man, if only. <laughs> um, no, so there are 13 women who underwent some of the same tests that the Mercury 7 underwent and they passed them. And so they wanted to keep training for space. So they had some upcoming training planned at a military base, but NASA caught wind of it. And since they hadn't requested funding for that training, it got canceled. And so they did this big congressional hearing to try and get that training resumed. They were kind of asking the bare minimum. Obviously, they wanted to go to space, but ultimately, they just wanted to keep training to see if they were capable and if they were able to kind of pass those tests. Ultimately, the that was squashed. And there's a pretty great but also terrible scene of John Glenn coming into the hearing and Basically saying, you know, the men are the ones that go off and do these things and the women are the ones that that don't. That's just the natural order of things. You know, it just shows kind of what everyone was up against at the time. And it's great that we've, you know, very much evolved (laughs) since then. We have to take a quick break. We'll be back in a minute to discuss the changes inside NASA that made the space shuttle program new roles and ultimately the six possible. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back with Lauren Grush talking about public pressure and NASA's space truck. So there's that. That all sounds horrible. Then there's the six. And inside of that, beyond just public pressure, what happened inside of NASA? Just response to public pressure. We've got to do this or 
okay, there's a program. The program is going to end with the creation of the mission specialist and opening of our criteria. How did that process play out? Because that's the big change that enables all this to happen, right? Right. It was the creation of the mission specialist. There's also internal pressure at NASA as well. There's a great story about the saga of Ruth Bates Harris, who was really trying to open everyone's eyes to the problem of diversity that NASA had. I mean, there's a great quote in the book from one of the reports that they did, and it says, there have been three females sent into space by NASA. Two are Arabella and Anita, both spiders. The other is Miss Baker, a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> That's and not great. That was the state of uh, diversity and inclusion at the time before the women came on board. So definitely internal pressure there, external pressure just from the changing of the country, and then also the creation of the space shuttle, which was a much more spacious vehicle, allowed for a wider variety of crews on the uh, on board, and so all of those things together allowed for women to be inducted into the program. But also, like I said, NASA deliberately made an effort to reach out to these folks. You know, they targeted. Uh, Lions clubs, universities, places of higher education, places where they thought women would be, where they thought people of color would be. They even recruited Nichelle Nichols, who everyone knows as Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, to do a promotional video. And she was so excited about doing that. And actively in that video, she was encouraging women and people of color to apply. So it really shows that you you do have to p- put these things top of mind in order for them to be successful. That Nichelle Nichols video is bananas. We're gonna, we'll link in the show notes. Everyone should go watch it. Uh, it is wild. The the themes in that video are like laser the same themes of today. So at one point, she's like, we're in the business of space now with this space shuttle. It's going to fly like an airplane, regularly scheduled. You can get on it. Like, we're not just exploring. We're doing business now. Yeah. And that was... I mean, that's where we are now, first of all, like that's where we have arrived. But in that moment, that wasn't true. Right. But it I was seemed- just about to say it, it, there's plenty up for debate of whether or not uh, <laughs> those words uh, actually came to fruition. Um, and that's also a theme up in the book as well as kind of NASA's conceit and whether or not the space shuttle really turned out to be this reliable routine truck that they were advertising. That was kind of- You call it a truck? I I believe I did use the term truck in the book, but (laughs) I mean, they were definitely using some kind of car analogy, like a a freighter or something like that. So like a semi-truck, like it's going to ship things to space and bring them back. Exactly. And and it was going to be just as reliable as as driving across the country. You know, going to space was just going to be as reliable as, as that. And yeah, obviously, you know, as time progressed, you know, NASA kind of played a little fast and loose with the safety on board the shuttle. You know, uh, I, I think it was after four flights, they declared the shuttle operational, but most of the astronauts at the time never considered the space, the space shuttle operational. They always regarded it as a, you know, a very complex machine that carried a lot of risk and that there was no room for complacency whenever they flew on it. Um, but over time, they invited more and more non-astronauts to fly. So they had a lot of payload specialists that flew 
They flew a number of politicians. And when I first learned that years ago, I was shocked, you know, because I did grow up with the space shuttle, but I grew up after the Challenger accident happened. And that was just, you know, inconceivable to fly, (laughs) fly a politician. And then they were also gearing up to fly the first journalist into space at the time before Challenger. And then infamously on Challenger, you know, they flew um, the first teacher to go into space. And so it, it just kind of goes to show that they were trying to consider it as this thing that's, oh, it's safe. It's fine. Everything's all right. But then they learned the lesson of, in a very horrible way in 1986. I mean, that's what struck me as I watched this Nichelle Nichols video, which, by the way, is very entertaining. And I can see why it worked to recruit women and people of color to be astronauts. But the conceit of it is that space has been solved. That in this product of the space shuttle, we have solved space. And now we should give a bunch of people new kinds of jobs. And everyone is welcome to apply because space is a business now. And that, I mean, it led directly to tragedy because the pressure on that to be true was so high. But underneath it is, okay, now there's a new cast of characters, in particular the six, being recruited to fly in the shuttle who maybe can't complain as much as they should because they're already in the public eye and they already think it's dangerous. That interplay just seems like it was always kind of destined for tragedy. And that's something that uh, they were very cognizant of at the time. You can't complain and also you can't mess up. So one of the things that Sally talked about one of her fears before she flew was that she was going to somehow make a mistake. And I think that is a very poignant thing to say because there's there's a lot loaded in that phrase, right? She knew that if she messed up, and I think this is true for any, you know, underrepresented group that fly, that does something for the very first time, they are representing everyone. They're not just representing themselves, they're representing everyone. And so when the magnifying glass is upon them, they know that if they make a mistake or an error, it will be used to say, oh, it's not just Sally that can't hack space, it's that every woman cannot hack space. And so that was definitely something they were all very cognizant of during training and especially when they flew. I mean, even Judy, who was second in space, there's a funny story about a snafu she had with her hair on board. And she swore all of her crewmates to silence because she knew if that got out, the headlines would be, oh, long hair, not suitable for space, you know? Just... Something of like that. So it was definitely something they all had to be very cognizant of the entire time they were there. It did abate over time with each time one of them flew. But yeah, you know, it hung heavy on everything that they did. So the book closes with the Challenger disaster and the aftermath of it. That has been well reported at this point, kind of well investigated and documented. From your perspective, as you're writing the book and thinking about, okay, we're diversifying the space program. What were the effects post-Challenger of how NASA thought about recruiting new and different kinds of astronauts? Well, the one positive thing is that ever since this class of astronauts came on board, you know, they've welcomed more and more diverse range of astronauts into the program. So that was definitely a positive. They also completely reevaluated their safety procedures uh, in light of the Challenger accident. So many years ago, I was shocked to learn that people flew to space and just kind of, you know, onesie outfits. I mean, uh, they were flight suits. Um, they weren't onesies. I think they were their top and bottom, but, uh, (laughs) important distinction. Sure. Uh, but it was, Essentially, just like a garment you would wear, you know, uh, here on the ground. 
I've always known them to be flying with pressure suits, which are essentially a special kind of spacesuit that'll apply pressure in case they lose pressure in the cabin, which is what happened or which, which is what they think happened in the Challenger accident. They also provided more bailing out opportunities. The shuttle never really was that safe of a vehicle because there was no true abort system, but they at least tried to come up with other ways that they could bail out of the cabin if there was an issue. And then they also just completely redesigned the components that were to blame for Challenger and upended the processes through which they um, decide whether or not it's time to go fly. So that it definitely had a positive impact there. Also, the family members of the Challenger astronauts created the Challenger Center, uh, a learning organization that also reaches out to children and inspires them to go into space and STEM. So a lot of good did come out of it, but it also is just tragic that it had to happen in order for those things to to move forward. Let's skip ahead to now, basically. Your book is coming out right on time. Sally Ride's first flight almost exactly 40 years ago, maybe a little more than 40 yeah, years ago. Yeah, this year. Yeah, it was uh, in June of this year. Yeah. So it's, it's been 40 years. There has been this sort of big conversation about diversity in our workplaces, diversity in the sciences. In aerospace specifically, in NASA specifically, where do you think the biggest changes have been? We are working to get back to the moon through NASA's Artemis program and that has a stated goal of sending the first woman and the first person of color to the surface of the moon. I don't think that's ever been outwardly a goal of a NASA human spaceflight mission before. So that is a very big change. And also through that program, they have assigned the first crew to Artemis II, and that includes Victor Glover and Christina Cook, and they'll be the first person of color and the first woman to fly to deep space. They won't be landing on the moon, but they will be flying around the moon. And so that will be another big milestone. But, you know, at the same time, there's still quite a long way to go. I point out that less than one-sixth of the people who've been to space are women, and the statistics for women of color are abysmal. (laughs) You know, it is an interesting time for space because we have way more companies and opportunities to send people to space ever than we have before. You know, we have SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic, albeit suborbital for the latter two. (laughs) Um, But it's still a way to send people to space. It is another opportunity for more people to get into space that who might not have had that chance before. Unfortunately, you know, it's like a a win-lose situation in my mind because you still have to have a pretty hefty wallet in order to afford those missions. But, you know, there have been generous benefactors who have brought people with them who would not have had that opportunity. There's also charities and raffle draws, you know, that have allowed people to go on those flights. So there is more availability to go to space than ever before. It's still not perfect. And we still have a long way to go to reach true parity. But, you know, we have hope and we have more opportunities than we used to have. Can I ask you kind of just a big think question about that? I think about the Blue Origin flights, the Virgin Galactic flights, and I laughed when you said suborbital because we've all watched the videos, right? They they go up there, they float around for a few seconds, they come back down. And that, yep, they're going to space. But the value of that going to space and saying, okay, a diverse group of people has floated about for a few seconds versus what we think of when we think about NASA, right? A diverse group of people is going to do science in space or mm-hmm. a diverse group of people is going to go up there for a, a more than a few seconds, have a set of experiences, and then bring that back down to Earth and be ambassadors for everyone else. That's very different than just floating around. 
And I, <laughs> I recognize the floating around. It's very difficult to get to the point where you can float around. But they're very different things. And we kind of munge them together into going to space. In the community, is there a sense that those are different, that sending a, a diverse crew of people up on a Blue Origin flight to float around and take pictures is meaningfully different than going to space to do science? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> no one's going to – well, some people will probably be outright about it. Uh, <laughs> obviously, there's a lot of di- there's a lot of discussion of whether or not we even should call people who fly on Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic astronauts. I obviously don't care that much, but to some it is, you know, very – an important distinction. You know, a lot of times people will refer to them as spaceflight participants because they're not – Oh, my. Yeah, they're that they're, is delightfully passive aggressive. It it really is. Um, <laughs> I do think there is a lot of value in what Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic provide. Um, you know, for instance, Virgin Galactic just performed its first commercial space mission after nearly twenty years of being in existence, and that first flight was a research mission with the Italian Air Force, and so they packed the cabin full of payloads and and experiments that the spaceflight participants, uh, the researchers attended to while they were in space. And so that is often propped up as kind of this in-between platform between, you know, the vomit comet, that parabolic flight where you experience microgravity for 30 seconds at a time here on Earth, and also going to orbit, which takes a lot more time, a lot more energy, and a lot more money. So there is definitely that kind of scientific value there. But yes, there is quite a significant distinction between going to space for a few minutes, coming back down right after, and going to orbit, and definitely a very vast chasm in terms of how you train for both of those scenarios. Do you think there's the same amount of value that we get as a society or as a public or as a community from those more touristy flights versus, okay, we're building a, we're building a generation of scientists that are organized around being astronauts. I mean, you're asking my personal opinion. Yeah. I mean, you're the one who just wrote a book about diversity. Like, I, that's I guess true. I'll that's ask true. you a hypothetical. Maybe, maybe it's a little more challenging, uh, but a little more direct. If the first six women in space had been on Blue Origin flights, would that have been a good thing? Mm. I definitely think it would have a very different kind of impact. You know, it. I think sending them to orbit by far was much more of a statement, you know, than I think that would have been made if they had just gone for a few minutes. It would have it would have felt a bit like a consolation. But at the same time, you know, Alan Shepard was the first man in or American man in space and he his flight was suborbital as well. So <laughs> and there's, you know, that that is still considered a pretty monumental achievement. So I'm sure we would have celebrated it at the time. But it that's just true of any any space flight like orbit is infinitely yeah. cooler. <laughs> uh, Sorry to everyone, you know, but not everyone has the ability to go to orbit. Yeah. It is Someone expensive. just canceled their million dollar Blue Origin reservation right? Yeah. after listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> you've reported a lot on these companies. You reported a lot of them at The Verge. The commercialization of space in general, a huge monumental shift. I promised you before you came on to talk about your book about the first six women in space. We would not talk about Elon Musk too much, but if you talk about <laughs> the president of space, that is part of the story, right? Is that 
a handful of big private companies who have effectively taken over space exploration in the United States. Uh, SpaceX is obviously one of them, the most important. Blue Origin, the other, most famous. There's some others. The cultures of these companies, you have reported on them at The Verge uh, when you were here, right? There have been allegations of sexual harassment in these companies. Bezos literally wearing a cowboy hat when he does Blue Origin stuff, like the culture of that company you've reported on, kind of a cowboy culture. Is that Does NASA have control of that? Or is that the companies are private companies and they're going to do what they are and they're vendors to the government? So that is a question that we've been asking for some time, especially when Elon makes his statements that he does. <laughs> I believe the answer is no. You know, NASA does not have control over it. And that's kind of how these arrangements work. It's NASA is buying a service from the company, just as you and I buy a service whenever we order something online. Uh, obviously, it's a bit more complicated than that, and they have a bit closer of a relationship, but that is kind of what they're trying to achieve. And so ultimately, you know, I'm sure they can express their dismay whenever these things happen, but they don't have control over Elon. And so we have repeatedly asked during press conferences, you know, Elon did this recently, or he said this recently. When is that going to be an issue? Like, at what point do you worry about the things that he says? And ultimately, they kind of brush things off just because I think we're in this really precarious position where NASA is so reliant on SpaceX and they need the company in order to send astronauts to the space station, to resupply the space station. They're now building the human lunar lander for the Artemis program. So it is a very interesting place to be in. I've also heard some a great point that, you know, what happens if SpaceX were to go bankrupt one day? You know, it's not even just what Elon is saying or even how their uh, internal sexual harassment procedures are going, but what if they, you know, are no longer in existence? You know, it's, there's a, a variety of reasons we should be concerned about how reliant we are on one space company. The whole point of commercialized space was that you would create a market, that be, there'd be a lot of competitors, that if SpaceX wasn't cheap enough, you could go to Lockheed Martin or whatever. That hasn't played out. Do you see any glimmers of that competition coming to this industry? Uh, I think we, there are a lot of companies that are trying, uh, the issue. <laughs> when Lauren the was issue, at the Virgin reported, she did a lot of stories in the companies that were trying. Yes. Yes, I did. And <laughs> you know, one of the things I always joke about is this, my beat makes plenty of my stories obsolete, uh, not even, you know, a, f a year or two after I've written them. So I bet there's a bunch of things we've like literally I've ends in explosions is Lauren. Yes. <laughs> or just programs that were promised and then, you know, all of a sudden they disappear, you know, Virgin Orbit, you know, rest in peace. We wrote a lot about them when <laughs> I was there and they uh, filed for bankruptcy this year and are no more. That's just the nature of space. And it it's a very capital intensive business and it takes a lot of time in order to become a mature business. And SpaceX obviously started many years ago. I mean, not not too long ago, but longer than a lot of these startups. A lot of them are trying to play catch up and it's hard to compete with them because they have dominated the market for a while now. So, but it's still a very exciting time to be covering space because 
you know, there are so many hopeful companies that are emerging and trying to compete with SpaceX. Now, one thing that is very important to me and relates back to the book is that we can say that we are being diverse and inclusive with these new efforts and we can send the right people into space and, you know, try to right those wrongs. But at the same time, the space industry is just an industry like any other in the tech industry. And it is still filled with problems in terms of, like, as you mentioned, sexual harassment and diversity and inclusion that I think sometimes get swept under the rug because it's space and we see it as this hopeful endeavor. And while it is, it's still a business and people are at the heart of that business. And so there's still a long way to go. We might be getting better when it comes to the people we're sending into space, but the people who are sending them into space are also dealing with the same issues and structural problems that we've all been dealing with for for decades now. Yeah. And that's borne out in your stories now, Bloomberg and then when I was working with you here at The Verge, a lot of the stories were like people at work are unhappy yeah. about work. And it was like the same story, just they happen to work on rockets. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same for the six, too. I mean, that's ultimately what I hope people take away. It's just these were women trying to do their jobs, but they just had a lot of people watching them do that job, you know, and and that's just it. It creates frustrations and and interesting situations. But at the end of the day, they just wanted to work. Do you think it's easier now? I mean, again, it's 40 years later. A lot of these problems, we still talk about them loudly in controversial ways. But, you know, it's an ever present part of our conversation about work now. Do you, mm-hmm. do you think that's made it easier to enter science center space? Oh, I definitely think we've made it a lot easier. There are a lot of great initiatives that target women and people of color to help them get jobs into the space industry. Brooke Owens Fellowship is one that I really like a lot. But like I said, it's not as if we've solved all the issues, you know, just because we are finding more ways for people to get into space. You know, there's still quite a bit of sexual harassment. HR is not paying attention, you know, things getting swept under the rug. And that's just, you know, it's, it's important to me if I do hear about those things to try and highlight it as best I can. It's very difficult, but uh, it will always remain important to me. We need to take another quick break, but Lauren and I will be right back to talk about the politics of space. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey. 
instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back, and it's time to talk about the space race. One of the things you call it in the book is as the six grow up, they're in an environment where the the space race with the Russians is ever present. I think it's Rhea Seddon you call out. She was on a path to be like a very prim Southern belle. And then the space race happened and science education was flooded into American public schools and she ended up being a doctor and then she ended up being an astronaut. Do you mm-hmm. see any of that sort of big structural pressure on us right now? I was thinking about it, it's like, does our competition with China mean we're investing a lot into science education, which means we'll create a generation of female scientists? Like, I don't see that. I'm wondering if in writing the book you saw any parallels to today. The China discussion is interesting to me because that is often invoked as kind of this analog for the space race. You know, it's no longer that we're in a race with the Soviets or Russia. It's we're in a race with China. It just doesn't have the same gravitas that I think the Cold War did, simply because the U.S. has already, quote unquote, won. Uh, You know, we've been to the moon. We have done all of these things. (laughs) I definitely think people will be very upset if China sends somebody to the moon. But I just don't think it it, uh, inspires that same level of urgency that the Soviet Union did at the time. And so you're right. It's not playing out in the same way. But I do think a lot of NASA leadership and political leadership are trying to make it into a similar situation because they want that similar sense of urgency and they want that funding because that was a big part of the the space race. NASA's budget swelled quite a bit because it was such a national priority at the time. We are definitely nowhere near that level. There are other things, other pressing things at the moment, especially when it comes to climate change. And I think that's fine. You know, that is kind of a big pressing problem that we do need to address. Um, I don't think it needs to be an either or situation. Uh, NASA's role can certainly play a major part in the climate change, you know, initiative. But it, you're right. I don't think the China and U.S. space race, first of all, I, there's a lot of debate of whether it is a race. Second of all, is it something that we necessarily need to be, you know, wringing our hands about? What's interesting about this whole conversation is when it is a big national priority with swelling budgets, you can impose some pressure on a government agency to say, OK, you need to put more women and people of color into this program, right? Like this should look like the United States. When it's the government contracting a vendor like SpaceX, A, that pressure is hard. And then B, not for nothing, the CEO of SpaceX owns a car company that does a lot of business in China. And that seems like it's incredibly complicated for anyone to piece through. So we just don't talk about it a lot, but we pretend it's a race. And I'm wondering, like fundamentally, can the government 
get through that and create space as a national priority again? Or are we just sort of handed this off to, to Elon and SpaceX? This is a great question. I think space is always a priority because we've always been the leaders in the space field. I mean, we will probably remain that way for some time. I do think that if China advances much more, there will be concern, you know, there will be a like a level of outcry. Whether or not that's warranted is up for debate, but I'm sure that will happen. It was a bit of a perfect storm when the space race happened, right? And I don't think those conditions will ever really happen again. So I don't know if we will be able to recreate that kind of very ravenous you know, time for space that we did back then. I do think that everyone thinks that our space priorities are nice to have. And obviously, when we do big, bold things in space, they are applauded by the political leaders at, of the time, <laughs> regardless of whether or not they started those initiatives. But I think it's also very easy to cut those things when there are other pressing issues coming down the road. Like I said, I don't necessarily think these need to be either or. NASA is famously 0.5% of the federal budget, so it does not take up <laughs> a lot of resources, but it always kind of gets on the chopping block when people say we're spending too much because it just doesn't feel like something that is super pressing to our needs. So you and I are talking the day after a big Ronan Farrow profile of Elon Musk and The New Yorker. There's a lot of discussion about SpaceX in there. And there's a quote from Jim Bridenstine. He's a former head of NASA. He was appointed by Trump. He's a conservative. And the quote is about SpaceX. And it, it just really struck me. He says, there's only one thing worse than a government monopoly. That's a private monopoly the government is dependent on. And then he compares SpaceX to the Ocean Gate situation. He says, we just saw the submersible going down to visit the Titanic explode. People won't be as confident in the capabilities the commercial companies have if something goes wrong. I think we have to think about the non-regulatory environment as sometimes hurting the industry more than the regulatory environment. This is not what you would expect to hear from a conservative Trump appointee who famously led an expansion of commercial space. And I think by all accounts was considered a success in doing it. And he's saying, look, we're really dependent on this company. If they get something wrong, like public confidence in space is going to plummet. Is Does that pressure real or is this he's out? He doesn't have to he doesn't need a job anymore. <laughs> he can just say whatever he wants to say. Or is that actually percolating through the space community? Sure. First of all, I think I would be remiss if I didn't point out Bridenstine is now on Viasat's board. So I'm sure there's some <laughs> conflict of interest there. But he's not wrong. I mean, and I just we were just discussing this earlier, you know, SpaceX is our space program right now. I probably will get a lot of flack for saying that, but it is fundamentally tied with NASA. And if they were to suddenly disappear, we would lose a lot of access and a lot of things. And like I said, this industry takes a lot of time to develop. We can't just come up with new capabilities overnight. And so a lot of people make fun of, you know, Boeing Starliner, which has been taking so long to get to the International Space Station. But ultimately, you know, it will be a good thing if and when it flies, because then we'll have that extra redundancy in case there, you know, heaven forbid, there is some kind of issue with the Crew Dragon. So 
yeah, I think those words are definitely relevant and and make a lot of sense. As for Ocean Gate, I did make kind of similar parallels in a story. Um, the concern is for right now, there is a moratorium on regulating human spaceflight for safety. And that is ending soon. And so the FAA is starting to think about what regulations might look like. But the concern is what happens if something bad happens? It's not even an if, you know, a lot of people have kind of said a win situation. And that's going to have a lot of eyes on it. There's going to be a lot of opinions. And if when that happens, there's probably going to be a lot of calls for change. And when you are calling for change right after a tragedy, the decisions we make aren't necessarily the right ones if they're hasty, you know. And so that was the the point that was made in the article that I wrote, just that we want to be smart about these things if and when something does go wrong so that we have the proper protocols in place and that we aren't hastily putting things into, into motion that um, are less safe. Yeah. Let's end by talking about the book. It is a great book. Everyone should go read it. And it'll be available after this podcast goes out. So go buy it right away. What's your favorite story from the book? Oh, my favorite story. There's so many great stories. The women proving themselves when you'd least expect it. Um, there's a great moment where three of the women and three of their male colleagues fly up to Boeing. They went to go check out the 747 that was used to ferry this shuttle across the country whenever it needed to be moved. And so they were walking around with this Boeing instructor and he asked if they wanted to, to check out the plane. And they were thinking the simulator and they were like, no, let's go fly the plane, <laughs> the actual 747. And so... <laughs> They they get inside and then the instructor's like, all right, so Judy, Anna, Sally, do y'all want to do some touch and goes where, you know, you land, you take off and you land. And what he didn't know is they um, weren't technically pilots or they <laughs> had not, if they had, you know, flown, they hadn't flown a, a plane of that size before. And so one of them pipes up and they're just like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And so they practice you know, they went back and forth doing touch and goes. And then at one point, you know, the instructor turned to Sally and he was like, so what other planes have you been checked out on? And she goes, oh, none. (laughs) (laughs) And he just kind of went completely ghost white because he thought they were all pros. They were all flying like pros. And, you know, it's just a testament to how well they were adapting to the training at the time. That's awesome. Well, the book is really fun. It's full of stories like that. I encourage everyone to go out and read it. Lauren, Always one of my very favorite ex-Verge people in the family forever. Thanks for coming on, Decoder. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Lauren Grush for taking the time to join Decoder today. I call all of our former Verge reporters and editors expats instead of alumni. And Lauren is one of my very favorite expats. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. Quick reminder, I'm co-hosting the Code Conference this year with Casey Newton and Julia Borston. That's September 26th and 27th in California. Please, if you're interested in coming, you can apply to attend at voxmedia.com code. We'd love to see you there. It's going to be a great time. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoderattheverge.com or hit me up directly on threads. I'm at Reckless1280. It's pretty fun over there. We also have a TikTok. You can check it out at DecoderPod. We have a lot of videos going off there and a lot of really fun comments. Go check us out on TikTok at DecoderPod. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you really love the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. 
Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and edited by Callie Wright. The decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.